Alrighty, cool. Ooh, let me bring that down. So today we're going to go over something a little different. And by a little different, it's not all that different. Uh, but we're going to look at Bent Flivberg's uh, Making Social Science Matter. So Bent Flivberg is a Danish economic geographer who um, is many, many of his texts deal with this problem around social sciences. And he's interested in how the social sciences can attain some degree well, I shouldn't say that. He's not really interested in how they can, but he, he, he tries to locate the value of the social sciences. So his primary argument, certainly the one to be found in this text, is that the social sciences shouldn't really try to emulate or replicate the methods and style employed by the natural sciences in order to gain some degree of validity, which isn't to say that the social sciences are totally invalid now, or people, everyone considers them as such. Uh, but he, he traces the kind of history of the general uh, subordination of the social sciences to the natural sciences. So that's kind of, you know, to preface up this book a little bit. So he starts out, oh, that was loud, sorry. He starts out by recounting the uh, Alan Sokol affair, where uh, Sokol released or wrote a text called the tra Transgressing the Boundaries Towards the Transformative Hermeneutics of Quantum Gravity. Now, I'm sure that most people are familiar with this, uh, but to kind of, you know, reiterate or to make it clear, uh, Sokol thought the social sciences and the humanities were full of garbage. Garbage academia that wasn't worth paying attention to and there wasn't any real kind of analytical rigor to their approaches. All in favor of kind of you know, getting rid of the social sciences or those sciences that didn't subscribe to the same methods, you know, so-called deemed to be the most appropriate. And we can certainly see that happening today. I mean, just recently with um, those people releasing all those articles to feminist journals in an effort to try and um, delegitimize, you know, feminist journals as being um, valid. But what it really should, like, you know, it... There are a million opinions on this. In my mind, what it really shows is just how difficult it is to peer review things in great detail. It's difficult to trace down every single uh, piece of data, but, you know, talk about that another time. So, Flivberg recounts this experiment, the Sokol experiment, where many people jumped on the bandwagon and were totally prepared to accept Sokol's findings, notably that quantum physics shows to us that there's no such thing as truth, right? Hence the transgressing the boundaries. So the quote-unquote postmodernists loved this ostensibly and took it up in ways that Sokol uh, set it up to be taken up as in the form of a trap. And then only afterwards, Sokol came out and said, yeah, I made all of this up. So therefore, this, you know, should reveal to us that those people that subscribe to kind of postmodern ideas are full of garbage. Now, if anyone is familiar with this, chances are you're familiar with it um, from YouTube, where there's a video um, called, or let me double check, right, it's called the, the one time that Bruno Latour, sorry, not Bruno Latour, when Alan Sokal destroyed, completely destroyed postmodernism. And there's a thumbnail with the photo of 
someone who we're supposed to assume is Alan Sokal, but is, or Sokal, I don't know how to pronounce it right, uh, but it's actually a photo of Bruno Latour, hence the my, you know, Freudian slip a few moments ago, and it's like, it's shocking, the people claiming to have this, some kind of, being able to tap into some kind of like transcendental empiricism or, or kind of truthfulness, can't even get their, uh, their characters right, but you know, I guess that's neither here nor there. A petty criticism, I suppose. And do this whole uh, Sokol thing. Um, Derrida had this nice comment on it. He was like, yeah, I don't know how seriously we're supposed to take a scientist that is Sokol, uh, who only got famous by producing um, a fake study, which I thought was a pretty... And that's not verbatim, but it kind of sounds like that, uh, which I thought was a pretty funny uh, approach. So Flivberg wants to, or he takes this moment as being like um, a possible learning experience where he doesn't want it, the question around the social sciences to be how can they become valid in the same way that the natural sciences are, at least supposedly. He says that in, in fact, the social sciences have a certain obligation to not adopt those very same methodological approaches indicative of the natural sciences. So what might those look like? Well, for Flivberg, he suggests that indicative of the natural sciences is this idea of the episteme, or kind of epistemic knowledge. So this is a kind of a tricky idea because I don't, I think Flivberg is a little bit selective in how he understands this term. So he's taking this term out of Aristotle and it applies to that idea of knowledge or just belongs to the domain of knowledge more generally. Now, for Flivberg, epistemic knowledge is kind of a priori arrived um, universal knowledge. Knowledge. So coming out of Aristotle, uh, Flivberg considers, as I, as I said, the episteme to be, the episteme to be like the kind of uh, universal set of beliefs pertaining to any given kind of knowledge base or the production of knowledge as such where and and he uses Foucault quite a bit in this book uh, Foucault's idea about the episteme is a little bit different so I want to read a passage from the um, the archaeology of knowledge where he says this the episteme is not a motionless figure that appeared one day with the mission of effacing all that preceded it it is a constantly moving set of articulations, shifts, and coincidences that are established only to give rise to others. As a set of relations between sciences, epistemological figures, positivities, and discursive practices, the episteme makes it possible to grasp the set of constraints and limitations which, at a given moment, are imposed on discourse. But this limitation is not the negative limitation that opposes knowledge to ignorance, reasoning to imagination, armed experience to fidelity to his appearances, and so on. So when we're working with Flivberg's term here, it's it's a little bit difficult to accept, but in order to kind of get through the book, <laughs> we have to we have to accept that episteme is more stagnant, more of a fixed concept pertaining to uh, the you know Socratic uh, method or kind of Socratic reasoning that has supposedly taken on something of a universal um, aura. Now the episteme and technical knowledge or techne are two things that come out of Aristotle 
And Flipberg kind of traces this right out, right out of the gates with his book and says that for the most part, Western history has been, or Western civilization has been guided by these two, right? Where techne applies to like craft, um, the ability to actually produce something physical in the world, and epistemic knowledge being able to supposedly produce and reproduce ideas or, or experiences or whatever in, you know, proper Socratic fashion. Where for Flivberg, these ideas are really, they really come out in Aristotle, in Aristotle's uh, ethics mostly, where there is a third concept as well, one that is, has been widely ignored. So he sets up what, you know, what Aristotle calls phronesis. So phronesis is that domain of knowledge that is true state and reasoned and capable of action with regards to things that are good or bad for man that's out of Aristotle. So this whole question indicative of the Sokol affair, kind of the Sokol experiment, uh, was that in order for a science to be considered legitimate, it has to contribute to the domain of epistemic knowledge as opposed to phronetic knowledge or phronetic values. Because while epistemic knowledge might be able to reproduce conditions, might be able to reproduce results, giving it some degree of validity in that domain, epistemic knowledge cannot actually give us a sense of value or tell us why such results are valuable. Whereas phonetic knowledge can supposedly do that. So this book is an attempt for Flivberg to think through the possibility that the social sciences can take on fully this kind of phonetic character rather than have trying to emulate and become part of that epistemic field. So he gives us an example of a, of a study done with paramedics. So there are these paramedics um, that were essentially made to be test subjects, well made to be. Te uh, paramedics were part of a, a research study where they were shown videos of other paramedics uh, performing various, you know, um, you know, life resuscitating maneuvers or movements or skills or whatever, paramedic stuff. And what they came to find was that of the test subjects that were the active paramedics, almost 90% of them could choose who were the most effective uh, or who were the most experienced paramedics that they were presented with. With the paramedic instructors, on the other hand, only 30% could actually choose the most experienced paramedics. So Flipberg takes this to mean that experience and practical knowledge are very important for, you know, arriving at certain value judgments and conclusions that a priori or kind of reason knowledge, intellectual knowledge, epistemic knowledge, as Flipberg understands it, doesn't give us that kind of um, understanding of the world. So he uses this example to kind of, you know, get into this, um, the muddy territory of justifying why value-oriented research or research that deals with context or people is very important. So upon considering this paramedic study, he moves into the work of um, someone by the name of Dreyfus, who kind of laid out five or suggested that there are five levels of learning. So for him, the first three levels correspond to almost what he calls rule-based thinking. 
or learning, where all you are doing from the first to the third levels is understanding the systems that you are working with and trying to, over the course of that time, minimize the amount of intellectual effort you need to put in in order to be an effective agent within that field. Now, he gives the example of uh, two chess players, more specifically, a chess player, human chess player versus a computer chess player. Now, what he says is that a computer chess player will always belong to the domain of the first three levels of learning because all they know is how to follow algorithms to the T. The fourth and fifth layers are responsible for a sort of spontaneity, intuition, and an ability to adapt to context that is not um, given to those that are stuck within the first three layers. So the, four, the fourth and fifth layers then contribute to the process of uh, creating knowledge in that field, right? Because it allows for a certain um, intense or intensities or kind of, um, oh God, what's the word? I guess intensities in the form of like new possibilities to come into fruition because it is after internalizing the rules in the first three layers that new things can occur where creation happens. So these first three layers are totally rational for, um, for Flivberg. They, they are given a formula and they follow it. In the first, you know, first and second layers, they are the, they probably, you know, drudge along trying to get through all the rules and understand them. But in the third layer, at the kind of high end of a rule-based understanding, all you have is, are, is the internalization of the system. You don't go any further than that. There's no spontaneity. There's no intuition. There's no kind of uh, calculation beyond the rules that are set forth. And you are, you are kind of made to be a robot in that way. So he says that, in, and this is especially pertinent in thinking the distinction between the computer chess player and the human chess player, humans are much more complex and they can very rarely be reduced to the first, second, and third um, components or the first, second, and third layers. If they're learning, if a human's learning a particular skill, absolutely, they have to go through these, these processes. Learning to play an instrument demands the um, grappling of various technical elements before being able to create your own stuff that, that can, you know, w there are exceptions, obviously, but, you know, th this is what we have. Where humans belong to what he calls a kind of irrational space, one that is full of intensities and full of kind of unexplainable, spontaneous acts. So in that way, it kind of belongs to the fourth and fifth layers. So he uses this to kind of emphasize that humans can't really be understood in terms of rational, rule-based, epistemic approaches to knowledge, but must be understood in context and intuitive, way, intuitive ways that account for these variations, that account for these kinds of uh, discrepancies across time and, and space. So this general approach is opposed to uh, a kind of Socratic method. So Flivenberg gives the example of a few Socratic dialogues one one's with um one with Mino, for instance, where you know he's trying to talk about how um talk about the uh, universality of virtue, and whenever he gives uh, Mino a, a question or a proposition, Mino always responds with particulars, responds with just individual kind of 
spontaneous instances to try and encapsulate this whole domain to which of course Socrates is not satisfied in his searching for these kind of universal truths or whatever um, and therefore you know they never get anywhere so it is in that way that Flipberg really is it taking from Nietzsche especially because we think of Nietzsche in like the the birth of tragedy where he's, he's taking on the kind of Apollonian character of Socrates in favor of kind of Dionysian you know illogical quote-unquote um, method that accounts for variations that accounts for in part that just how you know things don't always subscribe to a rational order so this opens up the possibility for um, Flivberg to theorize this thing that he takes from Kuhn no, um, that is a hermeneutic phenomenology or hermeneutic phenomenological approach now what he means by that, if we take these two terms separately, uh, hermeneutic, that is a study, or kind of like a close reading, and typically that applies to the, the Bible. So you do like a hermeneutic of, of the Bible, uh, or close reading or evaluation of you know certain texts or certain um, you know passages or whatever. And then phenomenology is uh, difficult to define, to say the least. It has a pretty expansive history. Phenomenology, in very basic terms, corresponds to that domain of philosophy that is interested in the realm of appearances. Now that's that's one approach where some other approaches and I'm I guess for the most part I'm um, more versed in uh, feminist phenomenology which is very much interested in embodiment where there is a direct connection between the world and the bodies that exist within it where the two shape one another right and in order for people to be you know, engaged in the world they have to have the ability to be embodied by the world which is and there are millions of arguments about that and you know this isn't like the definitive definition but i take that one to um to expound upon what flivberg means here because when he talks about a hermeneutic phenomenology he's suggesting that um the researcher or the study of any given societal framework anything any kind of cultural setup will have effects on the researcher as well or and i'm jumping ahead a little bit here we can consider this another way where all people are determined by their kind of social setup now this hermeneutic phenomenology then would account for these variations and allow people who are studying this to understand that there is no single possible interpretation of the way that things are operating Right, so it dissuades the possibility of, um, I guess, simplifying the world under the, you know, under a few kind of axiomatic presuppositions, whether they've been arrived at a priori or or what have you. So for this very reason, Flivberg doesn't see it really possible for the social sciences to adopt any kind of uh, epistemic approach, one indicative of the natural sciences, because there's no way that results could be reproduced one of the staples of quote-unquote valid research. Uh, they couldn't be reproduced, they couldn't be, um, I guess, explained in any sort of kind of rational way. Rather, these things are always susceptible to the, to the winds of change. <laughs> winds of, yeah. So in considering or putting into consideration context and how things change across time and space, uh, he brings up Bourdieu. So Bourdieu is being that person that thinks about like practical philosophy or uh, philosophical fieldwork, whatever that might look like. And he gives us uh, kind of a history here. 
So moving from that for just a moment, he says that there are, there are six layers to the development of a kind of natural science approach, an epistemic one, where the first three layers are, correspond to kind of a Socratic method, and they are as follows. Number one, explicit, or knowledge has to be explicit or clear. Number two, universal, pretty self-explanatory. Three, abstract, that is no reference to real examples, like how Socrates uh, chastised Mino for doing that. Now, number four and five here, we move from Socrates as our central figure into the domain of the, the moderns, um, early philosophy, early philosophy, like kind of core philosophy with Descartes and Kant, where number four corresponding to Descartes, it, um, who supposes that um, knowledge must be discrete, that is um, always context independent. Then number five with Kant, it has to be systematic. So we can think of the a priori here, or, you know, through reason arriving at some kind of, you know, logical whatever. Uh, and then number six, which is indicative of science, we arrive at a complete and predictive model where we can forecast things supposedly accurately, we can reproduce conditions, and that is what determines what is valid. So he's giving us kind of a history here. It's, you know, it's limited, but how are you, you know, I don't know how he would have done it otherwise, but yeah, here we have it. So the social sciences shouldn't try to adopt that, even though there are attempts certainly today in the social sciences to have a degree of validity, right, by being able to, you know, claim that there are true biological differences between like men and women or across races or stuff like that, as though these things don't change and they aren't negotiated through the way that people present themselves. Um, so instead of that, the social sciences should be more in tune to what um, uh, Flivberg takes from Bourdieu. They should be more attuned to what he calls second-degree explanations, where no possible real definitive explanation can be given, because that would be absurd, but rather we only approach things um, kind of marginally, you know, so that we can always claim a degree of separation from these axiomatic broad claims. So after kind of saying all this, uh, Flipberg also says that this isn't about um, undermining the natural sciences. He says that they have a very valid, you know, their own approach is valid as well. What he is challenging is the subordination of one to the other, is the suggestion that one is more valid than the other. That is something that he wants to oppose, and that's what he's trying to get at, because he sees that for the most part, the natural sciences look down upon the, the social sciences, right? Consider the social sciences to be kind of a gong show of research without any real, um, without any real outcomes. So now we move into the second part of the book, where he starts to consider how phronesis can be realized to some extent. So he brings up Aristotle once more and says, and locates in Aristotle three attributes of phronetic research or, or phronesis, and they are as follows. Number one, it should ask, where are we going? Number two, is it desirable? And number three, what should be done? So embedded within these questions are uh, various connotations pertaining to the fluidity of kind of social dynamics, right? Suggesting that things can change, suggesting that things can be negotiated and how they change, and that, you know, perhaps it's unclear as to what they'll actually change into. But rather, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing it. In fact, this is very legitimate research, especially because it, um, it affects so many people. 
But even this approach, the Aristotelian one, although it serves as a kind of point of departure for Flipberg's own project, it is limited. And he, he does digress before he gets into this some more, but what he essentially suggests is that while this is all well and good, we need to also have a consideration of power within this framework, where we consider the ways in which even frenetic research, even attempts to kind of move the social body in some way, can be in the favor of maintaining relations of power that otherwise we could we could very well challenge if we kept these things in mind. So he's going to work towards how we consider could consider power in relation to phronesis in order to be more, I guess, to have a, a better system, a more egalitarian type approach to it. Before doing this, however, he takes kind of a detour into one domain of social science research that is, or even in the natural sciences, I guess this is done, uh, but a domain of research that is often considered to be invalid. And that is the case study. So for Flivberg, he says that the case study is rich with possible information, with possible uh, conclusions to be derived from it, because for him, the general public, and this is a kind of an odd thing for him to say, um, isn't all that exciting for him. So the case study gives for him what he says... Uh, a nuanced view of reality, where he thinks that, for the most part, the general public could be very easily persuaded, right, in a kind of groupthink type type way. So if surveys are conducted, and this is how they're often conducted, you know, there are various axioms that guide them. They have to be blind, they have to be random, you know, all of this. Flivberg says, okay, well, you may just be affirming the very existence of some kind of societal prejudices um, that aren't natural nor are they universal but because you take these axioms to be indicators of validity that is randomness or, or blind um, then you come to affirm those very uh, results that you wanted to get right so if you were to send out um, for instance a survey asking are men better than women you know ridiculous thing chances are you know, who knows, actually. But if you were to get the results back that, yes, it says men are better than women, and then people come out and say definitively looked, we've checked all the boxes, we performed a blind random sample, uh, This we performed this study on a blind random sample, or we did this blind or whatever, um, therefore we have, you know, the facts. Whereas, you know, Flivberg kind of holds on to that, that old dictum, I forget who said it, but it goes like there are small lies, there are big lies, and then there are statistics. And there's a lot of truth to that, especially in relation to Flivberg here. So the case study can give us a peek into something that might otherwise go unnoticed. And it's not even as though the case study should be done to arrive at a kind of general um, narrative of you know the community or group or society, but that even in if they're taken as an individual instance, they can have a value in their own right. So it would be counter, um, it would be antithetical for Flivberg to suggest that, yeah, Flivberg, uh, Flivberg, uh, case studies are great if we did a thousand of them in a community of a thousand people. Because Flivberg would then be like, well, you're just doing the same thing. So he wants to locate a kind of value in the individual cases or in the particulars that are wholly enmeshed within a kind of cultural framework that you can get you know, you can get at the crux of through that individual instance or person. So in routing his argument back from 
this um, kind of detour through case studies, he considers power. And he considers um, public spheres to some extent. So this, this section deals with Habermas and Foucault. So Habermas still alive, I think, unless he died in the past few days. Um, Habermas is, you know, a thinker about public spheres that I can't stand, but, you know, I'll try to present him not biased. Uh, and then we have Foucault. So Flivberg recognizes in Habermas that he has a strong affinity with the kind of epistemic tradition as we understand it through Flivberg. You know, he's very much indebted to Kant, Hegel, not to say that Foucault isn't, um, but in the way he's indebted to them because of their attempts to arrive at kind of universalistic uh, conclusions about people, right? So what Habermas essentially says is that what in order to have a proper kind of liberal democratic society, we have to establish zones where people can get together and talk, and through reason, not force, people can then um, decide what is best for the community. So a number of problems with that right off the bat. How do you account for varying power relations if you have a group primarily of white males? Are they going to just speak more than other people, other minorities? I would tend to think yes. It's how I experience most of my time, or it's how I experience it most of my um, most of my days. To which. Habermas pretty much says, yeah, well, in order to curb that, in order to account for that, we're just going to check our privilege at the door, and then we'll come in as blank slates. To which people have very adequately, people like Nancy Fraser, uh, have been very reticent to assume that any such thing could occur, right? How do you just check your privilege at the door and then, you know, go in? And how do we know that any kind of reason that we arrive at is actually going to be best for the community, or if it'll just be best for a certain group of people? And not even, you know, uh, we should also mention that Habermas kind of frames this idea of the public sphere around um, the bourgeois model. Like, it, it, everything about it is wrong. It's, it's, it's shocking, really. I don't know how Adorno wasn't like, dude, what's wrong with you? But maybe he was. I, I don't know what their relationship was like. But yeah. someone can rip me apart for my poor understanding, I'm sure. So in opposition to Habermas... Uh, Flivberg puts, you know, brings us Foucault and says that Foucault gives us kind of the antidote to the Hab Habermasian model because Flivberg says, sure, that'd be a really great idea. Maybe there is a way to foster something like that, but we can't lose sight of the fact that there are relations of power that are essentially, that work on the people inside of it. So it's for that reason he's like, uh, he kind of looks back on Habermas and says, okay, let's move into something better now. So moving into Foucault, he recognizes that Foucault is also indebted to many of the same thinkers, like Foucault is often referred to as, you know, being part of that quote-unquote postmodern group, a term that makes me want to rip my hair out, um, as, as just like a neo-Kantian, which... <laughs> and this is certainly indicative of Habermas himself, who pretty much disregarded Foucault, said Foucault was just a kind of relative nihilist, didn't care about anything, uh, and that he shouldn't be taken seriously. So to this, uh, Flivberg says, okay, sure, there is the possibility that thinkers like Foucault could be read as relativistic, but he says, actually, maybe we could think of this another way. We could think of this as being uh, in tune with context variations, variations in context, where 
Rather than being relativistic, Foucault's work is certainly context-dependent, which, you know, is pretty much just saying relativistic, um, with but not quite as jarringly, of course. But Flivberg ultimately sees the value in that because he considers Nietzsche to be a kind of Nietzschean democrat, someone who doesn't ever, uh, is never really satisfied with any given uh, proposition, right, or any kind of given um, antidote or kind of uh, societal structure that'll fix everything in the form of kind of utopian ideal, but rather wants to, you know, continue the process of critique, right? He wants to keep things, you know, at bay through their perpetual analysis, through their perpetual uh, critique. Now, having, you know, established the distinction between Habermas and Foucault, which I don't know if it was totally necessary, I feel like he could have just jumped right into Foucault, um, he, he now moves into just Foucault. So he said, he takes a quote out of Foucault. I don't know where Foucault actually says this, so uh, Flivberg just quotes it. Uh, but according to Foucault, philosophy began with Aristotle, which is a, that's a funny sentence. I like that a lot. I guess, you know, Foucault didn't care much for the kind of Socratic or, or Platonic uh, means of thinking. I can't think of where he would have taken it on. I haven't read many of his lectures. Like, I've, I've read all of his books, but... Um, not, not the lectures, not all of them at least, and some of his essays, maybe as a thing about Socrates in the way that uh, Derrida has in um, on his Plato's Pharmacon thing, or the, yeah, the Pharmacon. Um, but I think that that's why, because Aristotle was certainly more in tune with context, certainly more in tune with the world around him than Plato or Socrates were who relied on epistemic knowledge. Again, epistemic as we understand it through Flivberg. But with that being said, Flivberg even sees in Foucault uh, various changes across um, his line of thinking, where he says that the early Foucault was actually much more geared towards a kind of epistemic approach, wanting to un, you know, think of a way for social sciences to have a kind of epistemic character in books like The Order of Things, and how that comes to change with, um, especially moving into history of sexuality and like discipline and punish. But he has, Foucault has this nice line in the Archaeology of Knowledge, uh, where he says that, generally speaking, madness and civilization accorded, accorded far too great a place, and a very enigmatic one too, to what I called an experiment, thus showing to what extent one was still close to admitting an anonymous and general subject of history. So this is, you know, this quote isn't in Flivberg, I just happen to recall it, um, this this shows like to some extent that even Foucault was aware of this, uh, how he was a part of that epistemic, you know, knowledge base or that desire to get at that in his much earlier work, and how it, by the archaeology of knowledge he's certainly starting to reconsider that. For Flipberg, however, he's interested in books like the History of Sexuality because they take at their base, you know, without having you know establishing a very clear methodological approach, even though he does have that kind of section, those four sections kind of laying it out. Um, what interests Flipberg is that Foucault is very clear that he's just speaking about a particular cultural moment here, and he's looking at various instances throughout that kind of cultural uh, moment. The same with Discipline and Punished, and to some extent I would certainly say the same for Madness and Civilization. But, you know, here we have it. So Foucault as Flivberg very correctly identifies, is a Nietzschean. Foucault is, you know, Nietzsche embodied in, you know, the mid-20th century. Uh, I hope no one sends me death threats for saying that. 
Uh, so it, it's in that way that Foucault isn't so much in, influenced, at least according to Flivberg, by Aristotle, but he's influenced by Nietzsche, who was influenced by Aristotle, again, according to Flivberg. So here we are given, or he takes from Foucault, four maxims that come out of, and look at the kind of, I didn't plan this, but the last one I did, video here I did, was on um, the history of sexuality, the second half of it, where he talks about this. So uh, Flipberg takes from Foucault four general propositions, and they are that power relations are intertwined with other relations. Number two, power comes from below. Number three, it cannot be contained. Number four, where there is power, there is resistance. So the general thing that Flipberg takes from that is that power is works in the form of like a network or like a spider web, as some people might uh, come to understand it or it exists at the granular or capillary level, where there is not a single locus of power, but rather it works in terms of relations and it works in terms of um, networks. So because power works in, the term, in terms of networks and because people pretty much work the exact same way, Flibberg says that there's a lot we can get out of Foucault in considering the way that we cannot necessarily just speak truth to power, right? We cannot just speak truth to a system that might be oppressive because that system may very well have determined the conditions of knowledge, con the, the conditions of power. And certainly we can see that today with much of the rhetoric going around about freedom of speech, where freedom of speech, you know, put a little footnote after speech and have the caveat, like freedom of speech is what we tell you it can be, and freedom of speech is yada, yada, yada. Freedom of speech is reserved for people who want to spout racist shit and all that, you know at least against marginalized folks. Freedom of speech stops when you have uh, black people or Black Lives Matter in the street. Then, then suddenly they're a mob and suddenly, yeah. So there are restrictions placed on it. So we can see, even with that example, that there is no possible production of knowledge if we take Foucault seriously that is not governed by some form of power. So even in the kind of, um, the moment where research is conducted, we see existing in that moment, there being a researcher and a researched, we see established in that moment uh, power relations in a, almost a, a hauntingly literal form where you have one people studying another group, you know, saying, you are going to be the ones that you are just, you know, going to be the ones that we, we study like some kind of lab rats. So it's in that way, and I, I get a little suspicious when he says this, but he says that frenetic research, um, no one should claim authority in frenetic research. And while it might be good to always resist that, you know, the claiming of authority, I don't know if it's fully possible, but he gives us that. He That's what he suggests, at least. So then he returns to those Aristotelian, um, I guess, concepts pertaining to phrenesis, or, or those three questions. And they are, I will reiterate as follows. You have, where are we going? Uh, number two, is it desirable? Number three, what should be done? So Flivberg says, in considering Foucault, what we're going to do is reconsider that. So we're going to add one, and that this one goes as follows. Who gains and who loses by what mechanisms of power? So this is what gives him kind of a model for the realization of frenetic research because it considers how power may influence and alter even those societal formations that are being studied or groups or people that are being studied and takes that into consideration. 
And especially because frenetic research is not something that is just studying something for the sake of studying it, but is actually interested in kind of um, allowing for things to develop and change, it will make it so that whatever it develops into, at least in a very ideal sense, um, is something that is better for people. So then he gives an example of his own experiences with what was uh, called the Alberg Project, which was an attempt to um, make Alborg more um, appealing for non for for all commuters commuters I guess from private um, transport to public to pedestrians um, everything like that and you know I don't want to spend too much time on this um, but he he recounts this experience because no matter how much kind of real data and kind of reasonable and logical um, evidence he provided to the city council about how it's beneficial to create, you know, work the city to be in favor of public transit and, you know, pedestrians and bike and cyclists, because the city is not sustainable if everyone has to get cars. Um, he, he says that, the, you know, the city council was always opposed to that, saying like, no, 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 uh, you're wrong, like, it doesn't matter, which really illuminated the fact for him that you can't really speak truth to power, right? It doesn't matter how much rationality you're coming to the table with, you are not going to be able to get at... Power is always going to outweigh you to some extent. And he says that it was only after, you know, much effort that he was actually able to get to the the table with them and, you know, actually engage in dialogue, at which point things could actually get better. And he takes this as a, a possibility and he says that, well... Um, it's really important to foster kind of dialogue, right, in a kind of Habermasian way, in order to allow for meaningful things to develop. So he says, in that in that capacity, he appreciates dialogue over polemics. And I, it's a little bit idealistic. I mean, I think there are times when dialogue fails, and you have to take on dialogue through other means, right. Um, Sometimes it's good not to play nice. Like, I don't think it should always be about respecting the other person, especially if they're, you know, trying to tout some authoritative type garbage. Um, but yeah, and, he, and he, he kind of, to conclude his book, just considers the importance of that and how the social sciences should try to emulate that approach by allowing for open dialogue between researchers and those people being researched, rendering them not objects of study, but subjects of study. People who can give back and contribute, and they can, researchers, researchers can go into certain areas and, you know, be a part of that community. Now, there are also a number of other problems with that, especially in, um, you know, the North American context, where in the case of many um, Aboriginal communities or nations, there are, there are groups that do not allow you know, white settler researchers to just go in and start studying them, no matter how kind of uh, benevolent they consider themselves to be, no matter how frenetically driven they consider themselves to be. So it's in that way that Flipberg gives us a pretty ideal vision here. And it's one that, you know, we should take to task and take with a grain of salt a little bit. But it is a nice image. And one of the nice things about him is that this is a really uh, approachable book. You know, there are some... You could take some central claims to task a little bit. Uh, some of his, you know, terms are used a little loosely, but he's a, he's a really good writer. Like he writes very methodically, and it's very clear. 
especially dealing with the, the subject matter, it's it's an impressive task to be able to do that. So I guess on that note, I you know I don't see any reason to keep keep it going here. I definitely recommend people check it out because it's really relevant today. With you know people running around saying that you know women's studies departments shouldn't exist and all that type of stuff. But on that note, if you made it this far, cool. And if you have a problem with the what I did, you know how to leave it, and you have the dislike button, do whatever you want, I don't give a shit. But 